to another episode of the Obey Podcast. So today what I'm going to talk about is a little more maybe in-depth in Biden's cabinet than you've been hearing on other podcasts because I want to talk about Janet Yellen. So Janet Yellen was the head of the Federal Reserve uh, while Obama was president before Trump replaced her with Jerome Powell. Now she is going to be nominated for Secretary of the Treasury, and it looks like Republicans have signaled that she is going to be sworn in without a problem. So why are we talking about the Secretary of the Treasury? Well, it's because it's indicative of a lot of economic policy we might want to expect under President Joe Biden. And none of it is good news as far as I'm concerned. So let's get, let's dig into that. So for, first off, um, Janet Yellen, when she ran the Federal Reserve, she was a person you might consider more dovish. You might consider more dovish when it came to interest rates. So what does that mean if you're not in tune with Federal Reserve and interest rates and all that jazz? Well, it means that she had the Federal Reserve target low interest rates, so close to zero interest rates during the economic recovery under President Barack Obama. So what, what the Federal Reserve often does is when the economy has a downturn, uh, d- downturn, the common narrative is that the Federal Reserve's job is to kind of smooth out the bad times and to take away the punch bowl when there are good times. So instead of having these large shocks, they try to even out the economic shocks. So instead of having years with 8% GDP increases and minus 3% GDP increases, the goal is to have like plus 3% year over year type thing. That's the general idea. I mean, we probably wouldn't see any 8% spikes and we wouldn't see any negative 8% spikes. But the idea is the Federal Reserve would be keeping that from happening and trying to keep a 3% like growth trend um, over time, something like that. So while Obama was president, she was in charge of the Federal Reserve, and she consistently targeted low interest rates. Well, some people would say that's a good thing, because when you have low interest rates, that means the cost of borrowing money is cheap. So if you're a business and you want to expand, the cost to expand is cheap because you don't have to put up as much money to borrow money. Instead of worrying about, like, say, okay, well, I would like to expand my company, but I couldn't really afford to take a 5% interest. You know, I, I, I couldn't afford a 5% loan um, on certain fixed things, even though it would be a good improvement to my company. That's just too much interest to pay on it. Um, I don't think I'd be able to pay that off. Well, if that interest rate was 3%, then maybe that company would reconsider and make different um, decisions. When you think of small businesses, you know, it's harder to make sense of these on-the-margin choices. But when you think of huge conglomerates that make, you know, huge decisions about factories, you could see why the difference between, like, 2 and 5% interest can be huge. Um, and it could be, like, millions of dollars. So the way the Federal Reserve does this is the, way, the amount of um, interest the Federal Reserve charges other banks to, um, you know, borrow money from the Federal Reserve they, they lower that rate. So that indirectly makes it so banks could say lower at a lower rate to businesses. Um, that's the shortened version. I think that suffices. Um, 
Okay. So when we talk about, say, Austrian economics, why would Austrian economics have tr trouble with this? Um, it seems like it makes sense that if you want to simulate the economy, you can lower interest rates in those places, can borrow money. Well, the issue you run into is that the interest rates being are, are artificially low. So they're, they're, they're centrally planned low interest rates, and they give off incorrect indicators to the economy. So that means people act in ways that don't really make sense in terms of business outlook. So if interest rates were low, but it wasn't because of the Federal Reserve, so let's say the Federal Reserve didn't exist. The interest rate would be how many people are trying to loan out money compared to how many businesses are trying to take out loans. So then some kind of natural interest rate would happen where, you know, d d d different people would have certain projects. They'd want loans of certain amounts. You'd assess those companies' risk and you'd give them an interest rate. And you just have this supply and demand of loans and people looking to loan out their money. Um, you'd have banks doing that on their own and they could negotiate the interest rates. Now, if there was a ton more deposits that like, uh, so, 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 so if, if the amount of money that was ready to be lent out increased by say a trillion dollars, you'd likely see lower interest rates because all of a sudden the, the, the supply of potential loans is much higher than if there was a trillion dollars less in potential loans. So you could see how the, the interest rate would correlate to some extent with the amount of money that is being saved in the economy. Well, when the Federal Reserve um, artificially pushes the interest rates down, they're sending signals to the economy that people aren't consuming and that they're saving. But that's not the case. They've just artificially um, changed, the, cha changed the interest rate. So that means these companies are going to make decisions as if there's a lot of savings to be had, there, there's a lot of resources for loans, when in reality there aren't all these loans available, there isn't a limitless amount of deposits that are at this low rate, it's really just a rate that the Federal Reserve is targeting that's pretty much arbitrary and based on administrative um, de decisions. So in Ludwig von Mises' uh, you know, economic treatise, Human Action, he compares this to a master builder. So imagine you're working on a house and you have, um, you, you're told that you can take out resources to meet your schematic. Um, and this is essentially what the Federal Reserve is signaling as, you know, money on the sidelines when they tell you the interest rate's really low. So you have your schematics and you are thinking, okay, well, based on the signal, we have plenty of resources. And then once you're about halfway through building your house, based on those schematics of like a 4,000 foot square, um, you know, a 4,000 square foot house, you realize I do not have the resources actually available to finish this house. Um, you really can maybe finish a few of the walls left, but there's no way you're going to be able to actually, um, you know, put in the rest of the resources to finish the house you planned. And now you have to make some catastrophic adjustments because there aren't the resources you expected. So um, the, 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 this is like, I, I guess, in a way, um, the foundation of the Austrian theory of the business cycle. So you have a bubble um, that, that, that ends up happening as a result of misperceptions in the economy leading to poor planning. The biggest bubbles we see occur because the indicators are systemic and happen on a widespread scale, such as through all the interest rates centrally planned by the Federal Reserve. So this is why all these companies, we, we, we get an artificial boom because it's based on these low interest rates and all these people go and get these artificially low loans. But then all of a sudden, you know, we've been operating under incorrect signals. And then there's a correction once all that kind of gets baked into the cake throughout several industries and throughout several projects. Um, so the, 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 this is essentially people act on bad knowledge because the Fed um, gives them a fake rate.
So even though they try to push down rates to stimulate activities, the activities they stimulate are bad to stimulate because the economic environment doesn't actually match up with those interest rates. Um, hopefully that, that, that was an okay uh, explanation and hopefully that was able to be followed. So that was the policy of the Federal Reserve while Obama was president, while Janet Yellen was in charge. So now, of course, since Biden is essentially trying to be Barack Obama 2.0, bringing in a lot of Obama staff, he is bringing her in as Secretary of Treasury, and he's going to give her the hands on the lever of the printing press. And as she's um, going in front of Congress and, to, and she's kind of discussing her preferences, she's essentially said, yes, the government needs to spend more money because of the downturn we're currently in, and we need to keep rates low, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really a continuation of what she supported under Obama. And she's also um, been a vocal proponent, proponent of fiscal stimulus. So we, we've talked about this in recent episodes. We've talked about how if the production side of things is closed, if services are closed, you can't have growth because no matter what, no matter how much money you pump into the economy, if you're saying businesses can't open up, then they're not going to hire back their employees. So you're inevitably, inevitably going to get a certain level of unemployment just based on lockdowns um, or restaurants only being allowed to operate at 25% capacity. Because even if you say you can open up back, back up at 25% capacity, it's like, well, you're hiring back one server per shift instead of four servers per shift. Um so you're, you're going to have issues, regardless of if the fiscal policy and the monetary policy lines up with the objectives, because that, uh, this is a unique time where certain businesses are completely shuttered or, um, you know, or certain types of services are disproportionately banned from acting in certain ways. And all that is seems to be neglected by the policies Janet Yellen's proposed. And then only now are people like Lori Lightfoot and Andrew Cuomo coming out and saying, oh, wait, our lockdowns have ruined the economy. I wonder what we should do. Maybe we should open up because no matter how much stimulus we do, we can't bring back revenues if all the businesses are closed. So that's a lot of reason to, I guess, oppose this basic agenda that Janet Yellen is falling in line of. Um, so that, that's the basic overview of why when somebody, especially somebody, you know, who might be very involved in economics or finance, one, one of the default positions is that people highly respect Janet Yellen, you know, that she was the Fed chair and all. And um, she had very, I guess, orthodox stances for what you'd expect from, I guess, the um, business uh, type of neoliberals that you'll hear from nowadays. So it, it wouldn't be surprising for somebody to signal their support for her and their happiness with her pick. Um, and, and also, you know, she gets the diversity points of being the first woman in both those roles. But I, I, I wouldn't say there's a good reason to be a fan of any of her policies. Now, she goes even further in ways that I find distasteful, where she, um, she actually had some sentiments regarding Bitcoin that I think people, I guess, should find concerning, but yet inevitable. And hopefully her, her, um, her, her statements won't amount to anything. But she kind of signaled that the government needs to crack down on Bitcoin and regulate Bitcoin because, unfortunately, Bitcoin can be used in ways that aren't regulated. You can use Bitcoin to subvert government regulations, and you could use Bitcoin to do illegal transactions that the government likes to make, you know, to, to criminalize. And this is the whole thing with Ross Ulbricht and Silk Road. If you're not familiar with Ross Ulbricht and the Free Ross movement, Ross Ulbricht was essentially a kid. I think he was in his 20s, if not 18. He was really good at coding, and he set up an online marketplace where people could use cryptocurrencies to sell goods. Um, now, this was quickly co-opted by people who sold drugs. I and you know, I 
my, 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 my stance on drugs is I don't care because if, it, if it's non-violent transaction and you're doing it to your own body, I really don't care what you do. So I don't mind that people were selling, you know, um, cocaine and heroin on Silk Road, but people were. The government got upset about it, and um, a bunch of people who sold drugs on Silk Road got arrested. They got normal, I guess, penalties you expect from people dealing drugs. And then Ross Ulbricht, just because he ran the site and created the software, he essentially gets a life sentence. Um, so a kid pretty much gets a life in- sentence because he sets up a um, almost like a Craigslist site for cri- cryptocurrency, and then people decide to use it for drug trading. So Janet Yellen very much is aware of those types of events, and she says, hey, Bitcoin's bad because people can use it in ways where the government doesn't have their eyes on them. It's not like a Visa card where it's easily followed through. No, it has this decentralized blockchain, and we don't we don't really like that. You know, it's hard for the government to control your life and be your overlord if you can um, escape them in any capacity, especially involving um, digital transactions. You know, in-person cash um, transactions are a way to get, get around government, but you have to do a lot of work. You have to, and you have to be like in the vicinity of a person at some point. And you could, you could still even track that to some extent, because most people have cell phones on them. But a digital transaction where you can have like an offline account and you could just send it through a, a encrypted blockchain to another person, well, that, that that's hard to crack down on criminal behavior. And a lot of criminal behavior is peaceful behavior. So. Janet Yellen has signaled that there is a distaste towards this element of Bitcoin, and that, that that should remind us that Bitcoin is on the government's mind, and we might see this come up as we hear more about the United States' stance on their own currency, their own fiat currency, and cryptocurrencies. Um, and this also kind of goes hand in hand with the recent investigations into Ripple. Um, I, I like to say I, I was more informed on this topic, but there has been a lot of drama around the regulation of Ripple, and... Um, I, I, th- I think there's a lot of signals that a lot of unfortunate cryptocurrencies may be subject to government regulations. And, and this is a concern that you have to keep in the back of your mind, because even if you're thinking, oh, I have Bitcoin, um, I, I, can, I can circumvent the government. Well, a lot of the times when you have Bitcoin, you're using services like Coinbase. And Coinbase is kind of like any other bank account you have where you give them all of your personal information. So that means any capital gains you make off Bitcoin, off Bitcoin may very well be sent in the government's direction in the near future, and then you may have to still deal with government um, based on whatever regulations they decide to do in terms of investing in crypto. So just because you're using crypto doesn't mean you're free of government and expect that to only get um, more difficult to circumvent. Although I'm pretty confident that the uh, crypto entrepreneurs are going to find ways to circumvent it. And it's not going to be the most difficult thing ever. But you just have to take that extra step and find ways to circumvent the evil people like Janet Yellen that want to oversee all your activities and make sure you're falling in line correctly. So so that's another reason to um, be distrustful and, um, you know, scoff at Janet Yellen and be, be, be disgusted by her intentions. So the last thing I wanted to signal um, and, and this is not directly related to Janet Yellen, but it's it's related to the markets and it relates to her role um, in the Federal Reserve. But I'm seeing a lot of indicators from mainstream news that they think we are in or are nearing certain kinds of asset bubbles. So this ties back into Bitcoin, and I think this ties into some other narratives that we should be concerned about. So if, if you listen to general neoliberal financial news on Bloomberg, they kind of ridicule Bitcoin and they see it as 
purely a speculative gamble. They don't see the real utility in it, and that's because they aren't thinking like a lot of crypto entrepreneurs that um, see circumventing government as a good in of itself. So they, they don't really grasp those utilities. They, they, they don't really grasp the encrypted blockchain the way you and I might. Um, so they kind of think it's a, it's a silly idea, and it's, it's a bubble that's waiting to burst. And there, there, there could be some truth to this. I don't know how Bitcoin should be priced in the mind of an investor. Um, I may have, unfortunately, sold off my Bitcoin at, um, at some point, <laughs> and I might not have a very large position at the moment because, you know, it doubled, so I sold it. I, I thought that was smart, and I thought it would dip, but it hasn't. Um, <laughs> and I lost out, so that, uh, that, that's my fault. But the, the, the point is, they, they, they see it as a bubble. And that means they've set up the narrative that if Bitcoin drops 50% or 75%, if it drops back down to that $10,000 level, they're going to use this as a, a another attempt to tar Bitcoin's name. And I don't think this is that big of a deal because they've tried to tar Bitcoin before. But that's something you should be watching out for. A thing I find more concerning is it looks like they're trying to blame Robinhood and other investing apps for a lot of the stock market um, asset, like a bubble that's brewing. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but you can pretty much set up an account on Robinhood or TD Ameritrade pretty easily. And especially Robinhood has gotten a notorious rep. Um, it's gotten a notorious reputation for kind of, I, I use this term a lot on this podcast, but I guess like, I, I, it's not really boomer cons, but it's like, um, it, it's just general boomers have this distaste with technology, especially things that they decide are, the, 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 the term they use is gamified. So because if you log on Robinhood, um, if your stocks are down for the day, it's, it's all in red when you log on. If they're up, it's all green. Certain stocks are in red, certain stocks are in green. And they say this looks like a video game, so stocks have been gamified. And because it's been gamified, it means us, it's us silly peasants can be manipulated into doing different things. And to some extent, there are a lot of nudges that come up, and that's like the behavioral economics term. And there, there are ways the government can manipulate us to do certain things. And, it, well, even private businesses can get, get us to do certain things with slight nudges. Um, you, you can see this in, like, Richard Thaler's work and Daniel Ariely's work and a lot of people. But that, that's kind of aside the point. The, the point is that they're very upset at Robin Hood because of gamification. And they, they, there have been all these hit pieces out about how maybe you shouldn't trust Robin Hood because it makes you want to day trade. It makes you want to change things in your portfolio. And really, the, the smart boomer investing tactic is putting money in uh, diversified S&P 500 ETFs and just letting them sit there for 20 years and then coming back to it when you're ready to retire. Um so they don't like that these young people are going on Reddit. They're posting about their big wins. They're, they're posting about their highly leveraged options that hit. And then they're kind of bragging off making a ton of money off Robinhood. They see all these people as irresponsible, you know, because they're not buying S&P 500 ETFs and sitting on them for 20 years. So since they aren't taking this conservative approach and they're doing things that Bloomberg interprets as risky, they're going to be the ones who are deemed greedy and irresponsible when it comes to the next financial crisis. Now, if you followed a lot of things I've talked about in this episode so far, you might have guessed that the real culprits behind the next financial crisis end up being the Federal Reserve. Because the Federal Reserve, you know, is telling all kinds of businesses how to um, use their resources. They're giving people cheaper money, which means they're often allocated in a way that isn't representative of the scarcity of money in our economy. 
and it leads to people leveraging down in positions because money is so cheap. So when money is really cheap, you're more likely to do things that are risky because, you know, it's not like you have to worry about paying back a higher percentage loan. You can leverage into something risky for much, much cheaper. So they've incentivized risky behavior, yet it seems to me from, from all the narratives I'm perceiving in the business news that they're just going to blame it on day traders that are under 30 and game-like uh, apps. So I, I, I guess the reason I'm telling you this isn't because there anything has already happened. I'm saying this because this is a narrative that they've set up. Though the Wall Street Journal did a story on this, um, I think, last weekend. So I think the weekend of the, um, of the 17th. They, they, they ran a story all about Robin Hood. There's one writer at the Wall Street Journal who specifically downloaded it, and he talked about how he made a trade today and stuff like this, and he all commented on the gamified aspects. And it was, it was very funny to read if you're a younger person. It just seems so silly the way that they, they, they go about describing it. Um, and then, the, then there was another article that's kind of saying, like, hey, these people are talking on Discord, and they're talking up stocks. And, like... There was a story about how GameStop has increased their stocks by 220% this month, and this has been attributed to essentially people on Reddit saying GameStop's going to go up, and a bunch of young people buying GameStop because it's really low, and it's not being attributed fully to the fact that people are at home playing games um, because, you know, people are locked in their houses. So... This is a narrative I'm, I'm just really concerned of because if it's something they double down on the second the asset bubble pops, one, it's an easy dodge for the Fed. The, the, the Fed doesn't have to own up to the fact that they've incentivized bad behavior. No, no, no. It's silly gamification, and if only we had more regulations, we could have avoided this whole mess. You should have listened to the people at begging the government to impose more rules. Um, and then, you know, what they'll do is they will impose more rules. <laughs> and then for people to day trade, they're, they're going to have to have like $20,000 extra on the side instead of like 5000 I'm pulling those numbers out of nowhere. But, but, but there are certain amounts of cash you have to have if you make a certain amount of um, trades in a day, which would qualify you as like a day trader. So they would what they, 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 they'd either increase those regulations, they make they might make people get licenses to trade, um, you know, more, more than a few times in the same day because right now like Robinhood will give you a warning if you buy and sell the same stock in the same same day um, so they're going to make that more difficult they're going to raise barriers to entry for being a day trader and they might make it so you're not even allowed to do that period on apps like Robinhood or TD Ameritrade unless you've gotten special types of verifications so this has been a, a heavy on the forecast episode but I'm pretty confident in this forecast I've let it kind of stew in my head for like the last week or two um once i saw it, it in the wall street journal it really clicked that that's what they've been hinting at so much on bloomberg news and then kind of uh they, they've been hinting that this is like the real enemy for the neoliberal establishment right now so i guess i guess the takeaways for this episode in summation Jan janet yellen she's a dove on interest rates and she wants more government spending despite how ineffective that's going to be she wants to crack down on Bitcoin, and the neoliberal establishment is setting up a narrative around Robinhood and other day trading acts to get away with. So, so, so the Federal Reserve can get away with, um, you know, pumping up the bubble, but they don't have to take any of the blame once again. Okay, <laughs> so, that, so that was a lot that was heavy on the finance, but I hope you guys got something out of it. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out the backlog or my other podcast, Beyond Talking Points, that I do. Feel free to check out those episodes as well. Um, and feel free to leave a rating or review or reach out to me on Twitter. Um, I appreciate that you're listening to this. Thank you so much. 
and I hope you tune in next time. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcatcher or share the podcast with a friend. You can find out more information about the Obey Podcast at anchor.fm slash obeypodcast or on Twitter at the Obey Podcast. Until next time. Next time.